coming up. Would you break a law just because you disagree with it? Would you break a law just because you think it's unjust? A lot of people are troubled by civil disobedience. Uh, they get a, a little upset. That's exactly the purpose of civil disobedience, to upset people. Is civil disobedience the most effective way to protest unjust laws? Gentlemen, get the thing straight. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. What's the difference between a truly unjust law and a merely bad law? Are you sure it's a federal law that I have to dance with you? No, I'd change that law if I could, Marge, but I can't. guest is Kimberly Brownlee from the University of Manchester. Civil Disobedience, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, civil disobedience. Ken, civil disobedience is a great tradition, uh, particularly in America. We have uh, Henry Thoreau, who refused to pay a poll tax because the money supported the Mexican War and the fugitive slave law. Then there's Rosa Parks, who refused to sit in the back of the bus, and Martin Luther King and the Vietnam War protesters. John, I certainly admire all those civil disobeyers, but tell me, exactly what is civil disobedience? Suppose Henry Thoreau and Henry Smough both refuse to pay their poll taxes. Thoreau does it for the noble reasons you just mentioned, but Schmoll does it because he'd rather spend the money at the pub, frankly. They're both disobeying a civil law. They're both, in a literal sense, civilly disobedient. But what's the difference? Just that Henry Thoreau had good intentions and Schmoll didn't? Well, his good intentions are, are part of the mix, but specifically he was trying to influence policy, and, and he was trying to influence by exercising free speech. I mean, his, his disobeying the law was a, was a speech act, an attempt at communicating his feelings about the unjustness of the law. Okay, does, but does uh, it have to involve a protest? What if Thoreau's grouchy cousin, his grouchy, uncommunicative cousin Larry Thoreau, didn't pay his poll taxes either, and he also didn't want to support the fugitive slave law and the Mexican War, but he didn't go around boasting about it, he didn't go around telling anybody about it. Would that be civil disobedience? Well, Ken, you know, civil disobedience isn't a scientifically precise concept. I can't give you a definition with no holes in it. I think it's better to list some traits that a paradigm case of civil disobedience has. I, I, let's try to do that. I mean, for one thing, it will be a refusal to obey or follow a law that is itself unjust or believed unjust, like the law against making salt that Gandhi broke or the law that supports unjust policies, like the poll tax. That's a start. I admit it doesn't tell us the difference between famous Henry and grouchy Larry. Well, but here's a way to think about the difference between uh, Larry and uh, Henry. Uh, Gandhi and Thoreau weren't just disobeying the law, but protesting the law and, and policy, and they were doing so publicly. Their acts were speech acts as well as acts of disobedience. <clears throat> they were done openly, and they didn't attempt to escape punishment. Same for draft uh, card burners and those who sat in at shops that refused to serve blacks. So that, that eliminates Grouchy Larry because he's not doing any of those other things. Well, okay, so that contributes to our paradigm. In addition, usually we have in mind nonviolent activities like sit-ins and marches. 
The intent is to change things, to get the law repealed or the policy changed. So now we have a paradigm uh, act uh, of civil disobedience. Disobeying or refusing to follow a law or a policy believed to be unjust or supportive of unjust injustice, doing so publicly and nonviolently with the intent of drawing attention to the law, uh, law or policy and with the intention of getting it changed. Okay, so that's our paradigm. Now that leads to the next question. We admire all those people we mentioned. Thoreau, Gandhi, King, and the student boycotters in the 60s. But does that mean that they were right to break the law? How can it be right to break a law? Well, in those cases, we, the admirers, think that the laws or policies were unjust. But how about a, a crowd nonviolently blocking the entrance to an abortion clinic in, in, in contravention of the law? I, I don't happen to think that laws that allowing access to abortion or to abortion clinics are unjust, but these people do. Does that make them morally right? Well, that raises a more extensive problem. We admire those who protest the laws we think are unjust, but we're part of a democracy full of people with very different values. We're supposed to settle things by voting or having our representatives in legislatures and Congress vote. But any law or policy on a controversial issue is likely to go against someone's deeply held beliefs. Does that give them the right the moral right to disobey it? It sounds like that's going to lead to chaos. Well, it seems to me that you're suggesting that in a society like ours, where there are other remedies like the one, like voting and taking things to court, those methods should be tried first and civil disobedience should be a last resort. Well, maybe, maybe that's ideal, but if there's time, it might be a pressing issue. There's not time to go to court. You might not have the money to hire a, a, a lawyer or a, or a congressman. Uh, sometimes it seems like civil disobedience has to be the first resort, not a last resort, because it's the only way to make anybody care about the issue. Well, you know, we've got plenty to talk about for the next hour, John. And we've got a guest to help us, Kimberly Brownlee, professor of political philosophy at the University of Manchester. And we want our listeners in the mix, too. 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, talks to a civilly disobedient protester in that city known for civil protest, Berkeley, California. She files this report. It's hard to think of UC Berkeley without thinking of civil disobedience. In 1964, when the university banned all political activity on campus, Mario Savio took his famous stand against censorship before a crowd of 4,000 people, just before being arrested. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. The Berkeley campus has changed over the years, and so have the machines. Today, most students milling around campus listen to iPods or talk on cell phones. This makes it hard to hear the free speech coming at them from one local street performer, Stoney Burke. You know they say this is the melting pot, where the scum rises to the top. iPod person, iPod person, come back. Her iPod's more important. In 1977, Stoney started yelling about politics and daily life on the campus plaza. I didn't really get radicalized until I got arrested for doing it. He began performing each week and was arrested more times than he can count. While he was just being uncivil and disruptive, the police continued to arrest him. In the beginning, it would be something like uh, vagrancy or begging, or, you know, just some kind of hassle thing. And it just kind of reinforced, I think, something very fundamental in me and all of us that you have to have a person out there talking. No, not blogging, not 
making a giant movie, not, you know, brandishing a gun, but just somebody talking outside. There's no security guards. There's no ticket to get in. You know, it sort of breaks the codes. Tedford, resign! When people with headphones walk by, he blows his whistle just outside class windows. That and his bellows disturb classes. The noise is not just disruptive. For Stoney, it's about breaking social codes to demonstrate their injustice. Whether you're playing a folk song, or whether you're juggling, or whether you've got a three-person comedy group, or a women pop singer, whatever it is on the street, there's so many restrictions, people are really discouraged from doing it. Sometimes, students crowd around Stoney, and he creates a temporary community free from those restrictions. He hopes students will get so annoyed, they might become more disruptive too. My whole concept of just get them in a circle. Once you do that, it's all over. They've created their community. If you'll gather around me children, a story I will tell. I guess Woody Guthrie is the closest thing I've ever seen. That if you could ever get Woody Guthrie into a comedic satiric box and get that's what he'd do. He'd travel around, he'd sing his songs about the rights of people. Here's a Christmas dinner for the families on release. Stoney says his job is to just keep ranting about the rights of people and being as loud as possible until conditions change. It's a slow thing. You know, it's definitely not a mass media thing. It's something where even in the first time you look at me, you go, oh, who's the homeless guy yelling? This is just what they warned me about in Berkeley. And I think it gives them courage to see one people go on a rant about something that they feel passionate about. You know, we're always told to keep it under control. And, you know, keep the, with what little credibility I have flowing through my veins like the Rio Grande, I'll tell you right here, we need to recall all the politicians. That's right, round them up. Stoney continues to rant and rave. These days, officers walking by pause to give him a stern look and then saunter away. I'm not invited here. No one said, Stoney, you can be here. A, a list of arrests would back up the fact that they really don't want you here. On the other side, I try to train myself to get in, you know, the dream of having a revolution. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.